Welcome to the La Dolce Vita Show, a woman's guide to living a fearless and fabulous life. My name is Heather Pickin, and I am here to give you that winning formula so that you can get clear on your vision, stay true to your values, and break through those mental walls. Check out my free resources at heatherpickin.com. This podcast is brought to you by Fierce Femme Wine, a woman's wine that inspires dialogue for change. Visit fiercefemme.com. So let's get ready as we uncover the formula to your success in business, career, and fabulous life. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the La Dolce Vita Show, a woman's guide to living a fearless and fabulous life. And I am your host, Heather Pickin. And today, I, I'm really excited about the topic today because we're going to go deep. I am a, I'm a deep thinker, and I, I want to talk about uh, Mark Gober's latest book. So I've got it right here if you're uh, looking at it on the video screen. An End to Upside Down Thinking, and this is a really interesting uh, subtitle, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications of Everyday Life. So if you are watching or listening to this on iTunes, I want you to stop it right now because here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to markgober.com, and that's going to be in the uh, the show notes where you can purchase his book. And if you purchase his book, here's what I want to do. Uh, just send me a receipt, and uh, if you go to fiercefem.com, you'll get 25% off one of my Fierce Femme wines. Um, and why am I doing that? Because I want to support uh, the people that I have on the show. So, Mark, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that wonderful offer. I appreciate the support. Absolutely. My pleasure. So, Mark, I have been uh, absolutely fascinated in this subject, talking about consciousness. I think back in, uh, was it 2007, 2006, 2007. And when I was reading your book, um, what I was really impressed, so I want to share what I was impressed about, is some of the testimonials of, of, of people in your book. So you've got Rupert Sheldrake, you've got Dean Radden, and not only that, but your background is very interesting because you are a fine. You used to be a financial analyst uh, in in New York, so <laughs> I thought yeah. that was pretty impressive. And and before I begin in today's uh, subject, um, how did you come about like writing this book? Because this is a, a departure from you know your your banking uh, your you know financial uh, realm. It totally is, and like you said, I used to work. In investment banking in New York and for the last nine years I've been with a firm called Sherpa Technology Group. I'm currently based in Silicon Valley and we advise tech companies on business strategy and innovation. So I'm very much in the business world. It, this all started for me, the topic of consciousness and my interest there. Um, in August of 2016, I was listening to podcasts and I heard one on a show called Extreme Health Radio. I wasn't trying to learn about consciousness, but They interviewed a woman who talked about her own psychic abilities and abilities to communicate with other realms. And these were things that I'd never heard of before. The woman's name is Laura Powers. And at the end of that interview, she mentioned her own podcast called Healing Powers, where she interviews other people that have had these experiences. And I ended up listening to that podcast. 
And in a very short amount of time, I listened to all of the episodes in that podcast going back to 2011. And after that, I realized that something was up and that led me to research for about a year. And it was in the summer of 2017 that I wrote the book. So initially writing the book was not on my radar. It was just personal interest to understand this alternative picture of reality that I previously knew nothing about. I love that. It's such a fascinating story. Now, before we go a little bit deeper, uh, let's talk about uh, actually defining what consciousness is for those that might not understand the concept. The way I think about consciousness is that it's the subjective inner experience that we all have, kind of like an awareness. So when I say that I am speaking right now, that I is what I mean by consciousness. So it's not really a tangible thing. It's like the subjective experiencer that we all have. We can't touch it. We can't put our finger on it, but it is there witnessing and experiencing our life. That's what I mean by consciousness. Mm, okay, great. I like that uh, definition so that everyone can understand. Uh, so let's go a little bit into, um, you know, it's interesting how you wrote this book because you had arguments for and against. Why was that important to put that in your book? One of the things that surprised me, really shocked me in my research was the fact that there, on the one hand, there was so much evidence that seemed very strong, like from the U.S. government, from Princeton University, from the University of Virginia, studies published by the American Psychological Association, even within the last year. And on the other hand, there were really, really smart people saying things like ESP and psychic abilities don't exist. And... Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for example, has even gone as far to say that he wonders whether there's no such thing as consciousness at all. Stephen Hawking has said he gets uneasy when people, especially theoretical physicists, talk about consciousness. So these were like, someone has to be wrong. They can't both be right. And I wanted to expose that because I think one of the first things that, one of the first reactions I often heard when I started to tell people about the research I was doing was, like, wait a second, if this stuff is real, then wouldn't all these smart people already be talking about it? So I wanted to acknowledge that there is a rift in science and try to explain what that rift is because it's something that naturally comes up as a question. Mm, I love that. It's kind of like, um, you know, when I think about Western medicine and the, the Newtonian model about, you know, you've got something wrong with you, then you take medication. And then we look at quantum physics and, and that is really about the energy and the vibration. So I, I know in this book, you, you talk about, you give references about quantum physics and how um, we could really use this in a powerful way. And at the same time, you know, I, I look at what's happening today and there's definitely a paradigm shift. So I'm kind of curious, like when you were writing this book, did you get people that were saying, you know, who are you to write this book or that's not true? Or did you feel that people were more receptive to this new way of thinking? When I wrote the book and started to share it, I was sharing it primarily with people that were already very open. And I think those who are not as open, we'll see what happens. I mean, as of the date of this recording, the book has only been out for a few months. And someone who thinks that the brain produces consciousness and consciousness is only in our body, it can't go outside, there's nothing non-local, those people might not even want to open the first page. So I think getting people's attention to, to who, are, who are pretty against these ideas to have them look at the evidence is one of the things I'm hoping happens. And an analogy that I use is, is what Galileo faced when he had all of his evidence in the telescope, 
which suggested that the Earth was not the center of the solar system, there were clergymen that didn't even want to look in the telescope to see his evidence. And I think we have something very similar happening where there's all this evidence that I think is really strong and a number of people think is really strong and they're enthusiastic about it. And yet there are very smart people that are refusing to look at it. And I'm hoping that by putting all the information in one place, some of those very smart people will start to open up and make these things mainstream. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And I also think like today, you know, you were talking about Galileo and it, it really comes back to fear. I, I think people are afraid of what they might find out or it, it just, it changes the way that they're uh, going to see their worldview. So have you seen that? I mean, I guess I actually see that in politics right now about, you know, kind of changing the paradigm, but I, I, I'm wondering what your experience is. Well, I experienced that personally. It was very difficult to accept a new paradigm when I thought I had lived my life basically knowing how things work and I realized I was totally wrong and it wasn't an easy transition. It didn't happen overnight. So I can imagine for someone who's more steeped in the mainstream, and let's say you have a PhD and have spent decades arguing that the universe is a certain way, I think it's just human nature to want to try to defend that. So this book to certain people I think will be very welcomed and probably eye-opening. To others, it's extremely threatening. Mm, yeah. Well, I know the women that, that listen or watch the show, they're, they're definitely open-minded. So I encourage uh, women to, uh, to get a copy of this book, open your mind and, and absorb the information and, you know, obviously reap the benefits. So let's talk about the implications. Let's, let's kind of go around like how this information can really impact on um, you know, the, the world today, you know, if we're, if we're talking about politics, let's, let's start there. Yeah, so the, the basic idea, as you alluded to earlier, is that the consciousness, as we defined it, like this, the sense of experiencing that we all have, that is not produced by the brain or the body, but rather the brain is almost like an antenna receiver, or more precisely, it's like a filtering mechanism where consciousness exists well beyond space and time and beyond the body. And our brain is actually limiting what we perceive. So we only see this sliver of reality. That is a total reversal of the conventional way of thinking. So that, it, re, it really redefines identity. So we go from being a body that has a consciousness, which is the conventional perspective. I would have said that was true. And that means when your body dies, your consciousness is gone. It means that my body is separate from your body and our consciousnesses are totally separate. Whereas this alternative perspective is one of interconnectedness and one where our identity is consciousness that is experiencing a body. So to give an analogy, um, uh, there's one from Dr. Bernardo Castro, a philosopher that I reference in my book, who says, imagine that all of reality is like a stream of water, where water represents consciousness. Each of us is like a whirlpool within that stream, meaning that we have our own localized experiences with our own boundaries. So it seems like we're separate but fundamentally we're interconnected as part of the same stream. So if you buy into this idea, like Erwin Schrodinger, the famous quantum physicist, he said, in truth, there is only one mind. So if we buy into this idea that there is just one mind that seems to be expressing itself through different bodies, then the notion of separation, which to me is driving a lot of the divisive forces in the world, whether they're political or otherwise, it, it creates a sense of division and selfishness that actually is pretty rational. If you believe in separation, I think a lot of the behaviors we see make sense. But if that assumption of separation is incorrect, which is what I think science is now suggesting, then a lot of the structures in society probably need to shift.
Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do agree. And, you know, another thing as, a, as you were talking, you know, you're saying that, you know, we're all connected. It's kind of like if, if you think about someone that you haven't talked to in a while and all of a sudden, you know, they, they call you up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the phenomena that I discuss in the book. And most of the book is the scientific evidence suggesting that consciousness isn't tied to the body. One of them is a phenomenon known as telepathy, mind-to-mind communication. And there, is, there have been studies done by Dr. Rupert Sheldrake where people seem to know who's calling before they, before they should even know anything. And they're doing this beyond what chance would predict. So I think an important point is that these everyday phenomena that many of us experience, and we write them off as chance, it's hard for us to pinpoint whether it's chance or not because the effects are just statistical. Like you have to run the numbers to see that what's happening is beyond chance. And in an everyday setting, you don't have that luxury. Mm. Now, Mark, in the book, you also talked about, I want to get on the subject because I, I find it's very fascinating, on remote viewing. Can you explain what that is? And uh, I know you were talking that you, you got a, a declassified um, information, I think from, was from the CIA that did this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So remote viewing is... So this is one that I I have found many people have a hard time relating to because whereas with telephone telepathy, almost everyone's had that. They think of someone and then they get a text or a phone call or an email. With remote viewing, it's, it's seeing something with your mind, like visually, but not using your eyes. So I can be here in California and theoretically go into a remote viewing trance and see something that I've never seen before that's on another continent and draw it out in pretty good detail. It seems like there are certain people that are able to do this very, very well. And those people were recruited in the U.S. government's basically psychic spying program that was run for over 20 years during the Cold War. And what was very interesting to me is that not only did the laser physicists at Stanford who ran the program say it was real, not only did the remote viewers themselves say it was real, but now we have documents from the CIA that were recently declassified, which explicitly say that remote viewing is real and that the implications are revolutionary, and that it was actually used on a number of occasions to find things. Mm, I, think, I think that's pretty interesting. And it's just, you know, I, I find if we, if we have this information as individuals, we can really uh, be powerful and we can transform our lives instead of, uh, I think a lot of times, well, especially right now, a lot of people are living in fear. And that kind of ties into how fast our technology is changing, especially with AI. So where do you see this going in relationship with AI? And, and what can you say with people that maybe are, are fearful of, of technology? Hmm. Well, on the topic of AI in particular, one of the issues that I think is often overlooked is the question of consciousness. So the show Westworld, for example, which has become very popular, where a very complex AI gets to a certain point of complexity where all of a sudden they become conscious and they develop memories and start to have emotions. So it's like this magical step that happens with enough complexity and technology, then consciousness just emerges. And that I think is really an assumption. And it's the assumption that I'm questioning in my book. Even Science Magazine has said that it's the number two question that remains in all of science, which is how could a brain ever produce consciousness? We don't know the answer. And the way I think about AI is, is that AI might be dangerous if we program the machines to do things that are not good for others. But can the machines develop a new consciousness on their own? 
that to me is, is an open question. I, I'm not sure, I mean, based on the evidence that I've seen, I don't think consciousness comes from anything material. So to say that a machine will, will spawn new consciousness is really based on assumptions, which I don't think are correct. So the, the, the short answer, do I think technology and AI are potentially dangerous? I think they're dangerous to the extent that the consciousness of living humans could program a machine to do things that are detrimental. But I am not sure that the machines themselves are, will be dangerous without a, a programmer. Mm, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it's another reason why I do the work that I do, because my mission is to empower millions of women in changing mass consciousness. And, and I find if, if, if women get more into the tech space, they get into AI, they're more on the, an even playing field, then we have a balance of power, right? So we bring on guests like yourself and say, hmm, how can I get the cut? How can I get this cutting edge? Well, you can get Mark's book and you can uh, educate yourself and, and use these strategies to empower your life. Now, let, let's talk about, uh, you know, tapping into this consciousness or collective consciousness as it relates to um, being innovative and finding inspiring ideas. Mm -hmm. Well, creativity is something that is not very well understood by conventional scientists. Like how is it that you're thinking you're just having going along about your, your normal business and an idea just comes to you? How does that happen? We can't like draw out the steps sometimes. It's not a logical process. It just like comes to you. And if we think about the brain as being sort of like this receiving mechanism, then maybe it's a matter of learning how to tap into the broader consciousness, which I agree is an extremely empowering idea. Um, there's an analogy that I like that I think your, your listeners might resonate with which is to say that if consciousness is like the sun, the sun is always shining and there are lots of rays, but we develop clouds in the sky, like overthinking or too many emotions that can block these rays of consciousness. So things like meditation or hypnosis or trance-like states seem to be ways of removing certain clouds. So maybe creativity is a matter of removing clouds and allowing a certain ray of consciousness to come in. Mm, yeah, so allowing ourselves to really quiet our minds. You know, when you were talking, I was thinking about uh, when I was, gosh, in grade school, so way before cell phones, Facebook, anything, you know, online, I had this flash of intuitive insight of digital uh, billboards. So we would go on these family trips and I would, I, I really felt like I, I saw the future. So would that, um, would that kind of flash of insight tie into kind of like a future projection and, and tapping into consciousness of, you know, what was going to happen? I think it's very possible. And there's a phenomenon that I discuss in my book known as precognition, which is being able to know the future or just sense it subconsciously before anyone knows what the future will be. And that is something that wouldn't make any sense if consciousness, again, is tied to the here and now and interest in your body. But if consciousness is beyond all space and time, it's at least conceivable that consciousness could almost reach forward in time and know a very, a very likely future before it happens. There's evidence that this can happen on a very small scale, such as um, a number of studies that have been done which measure skin responses, pupils, um, like as in the eyes, um, the brain, the heart. All of these bodily functions are measured while a person is watching a computer screen and pictures are randomly generated by the computer. So nobody knows what kind of picture will be shown and meanwhile the person's body is being measured. What the researchers find is that the body has a, a subconscious response 
seconds before the picture is even shown in a direction that's consistent with what the picture is. So let's say it's a very arousing picture, like a violent image, something that we know would stimulate the body after the person sees it. It seems based on these studies that a few seconds before the body actually is responding to these things before anyone knows what's gonna happen. So maybe what you experience is, is a bigger example of this precognitive effect. Mm, I love that. It, it's so fascinating and, and just taking that energy and really uh, being innovative and creative in our, in our businesses. I think that's really important. Now, let, let's also expand on the subject of consciousness and how we can use it to really create the health and vitality because now more than ever, I mean, we've got the opiate crisis, we've got people all drugged up, all messed up. So what, what, what's your take on that? Uh, now, after my research, I, I think the mind is much more powerful than is conventionally taught today. And I think the study of, of what's known as psychokinesis is really important to, to grasping this. It's been helpful for me. This is the idea that the mind can actually influence physical matter without touching anything. So it's, you change your mental state and the physical world shifts. Studies have been done like at Princeton University for nearly 30 years. This is a lab run by Dr. Robert John, the former Dean of Engineering there. And he worked with machines that are called random number generators. So these are machines that will generate zeros and ones in a totally random fashion. So when you look at the string of zeros and ones that are produced over a long period of time, it approaches 50% ones, 50% zeros, because it's like flipping a coin. It's totally random. When you ask people to try to mentally influence the machine, so they might say, hey, Mark, I know you're far away from the machine, but I want you to try to mentally like will the machine to produce more ones than zeros. Use your mental intention to do it. The machine subtly behaves differently. There will be more ones than zeros, but again, it takes statistics to detect it. Like you really have to look at the entire string and see that it's beyond chance that this is happening. So the reason I mention that is it's suggesting, and this is one example of many, that the mind is affecting the physical reality around us. So what does that mean for our health and just our lives in general? If our minds have that kind of power to at least have a subtle effect and perhaps even a bigger effect based on other studies, I think it can't hurt to try to have positive thoughts with regard to our lives and our health. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I know personally, uh, I, I think Western medicine has its place, but I'm not going to go to a doctor if there's nothing wrong with me mm -hmm. because you know, it's kind of like, well, now they're quote unquote trying to look for something. And so I, I just think we, we live in an interesting time where we really have to, um, you know, ask ourselves, okay, you know, whose, whose body is this? Can I really impact my health through my mind? Just, just like I could my, my negative thoughts. So I, I think that's really important. Now let's also talk about, uh, I know in your book, you were talking about, um, you know, the fear of death, the, the, also the near death experiences. So a lot of people have this question, what happens when you die? Hmm. Well, I don't know if we can tell for sure, because in the near-death experience, people don't actually die. They get to a state sometimes where they're in such extreme distress that they're clinically dead, like in cardiac arrest. So that's where the heart has stopped and there's no blood flowing to the brain. But I think we potentially get hints into what happens at death, because people start to go through a chain of experiences that's been reported throughout the ages. The Tibetan Book of the Dead talks about this, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Plato, 
And now with resuscitation technology, where we're able to bring people back from these traumas much better than we used to, the, the number of reports is on the rise. And people often report, I mean, it's not the same thing every time, but they talk about feeling unconditional love, feeling this sense of oneness. They're hovering over their bodies. It's known as an out-of-body experience. Sometimes they see things in the room from the vantage point of being above their body that is later verified as being accurate. In other words, it's not a hallucination by definition if it's accurately depicted. But people also talk about a life review. So in this process, they might see what they'll call a mystical being, like they'll call it a being of light or sometimes a religious figure even, or a deceased relative. And then they have a life review where they experience their whole life, but it's happening in a flash and they're judging themselves for how they acted towards people. In some cases, they take on the perspective of the person that they affected during their life. So let's say Bob is in his life review, he's in cardiac arrest, so his body is basically non-functional, and yet he's having this lucid experience. He's in the life review, and he remembers a time when he was very mean to Jane. He might re-experience that event through Jane's eyes, feeling the pain that he inflicted upon her, and then when he comes back into his body, which is always what happens in the near-death experience, there's a, like a calling to come back to the body. The, the person is usually forever changed. Like their perspective shifts. There's not as materialistic. They end up caring a lot more about other people rather than just how much they accumulate. Mm, interesting. You know, it gives us a different uh, perspective. And I don't know if I read it in this book, but I know there's also something called the overview effect. So when you're basically when astronauts are going to the moon, they, all, they also kind of separate them. They, they, they see actually themselves uh, more unified and, and their problems become like this small when they're in outer space. I have heard about that. And, and the astronaut Edgar Mitchell is the founder of the Institute of Noetic Sciences based on many of these principles. So he was in outer space and had kind of a mystical experience. And now he founded one of the preeminent institutions that studies these phenomena of consciousness. Mm, interesting. And Mark, I'm just kind of curious about your life. Like, do you feel like you have a superpower now that you have researched this information? I mean, literally your, your brain has changed its neuroplasticity. So I, I can, I mean, I can't even imagine some of the things that have happened. I actually, I, I think I remember hearing in another interview when you wanted to put out this work, you got a literary agent, um, that the same one as Eckhart uh, Tolle. So mm -hmm. <laughs> Were you putting a signal out there in the universe? <laughs> I, I guess so. I mean, the way the book came together is that I, I wrote it very quickly. Even though I had researched for a year, I ended up writing more than half of the draft manuscript in a long weekend in July 2017, finished it over the next few weekends. And then I got some positive feedback from a few scientists in the month of August 2017 who said, you should get this book to a mainstream audience. And I didn't even know who, what a literary agent was or what the publishing process was like. So I, I learned at that point that the best way to get the book out to a mainstream uh, audience was to get a literary agent. And I, I heard about Bill Gladstone, who is now my agent and my publisher. And he was fortunate. I was very fortunate that he read my email. He read my sample chapters and my proposal and signed me. So I got very wow. lucky. <laughs> I, I love it. And, you know, you're, you're just so uh, inspiring with your own journey and, and how you're you know, putting it into this book and also making an impact on, on this planet. So, uh, and also with your background being a, a financial analyst. So I think the correlation is really interesting looking at the scientific research and then kind of putting the data together so that, you know, 
anyone can pick up this book and read it like like a reference book and there's there's tons of references in the back and just the way that it's uh laid out so um mark i just thank you so much for this book and the interview today Thank you so much for having me and for all of your support. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, my pleasure. And we will have in the show notes, if you pick up a copy of Mark's book, so if you go to markgober.com, that's G-O-B-E-R.com, send me the receipt, uh, send it to support at heatherpicken.com. And if you head over to uh, uh, fiercefem.com, and I will uh, send you the the coupon for the 25% off, for one of my Fierce Femme wines. Uh, Mark, before we go, are there any last um, comments that you wanna share? I'll emphasize a point that I made earlier, which for me was that this process did not happen overnight. So if your listeners are new to these topics, it, it could be a gradual process. So you, maybe you'll read the book or listen to this interview or hear other topics like it. And it's sort of like opening a door a little bit. And over time, things can start to, start to shift. I, for me, it took a while to really start to internalize these things because the ideas just flew in the face of everything that I thought I knew. So it can be a gradual process. And I, I want to make your listeners aware of that. I love it. Everyone, just be patient. Be patient. Mark, again, thank you so much for being my guest. And until next time, everyone, live fearlessly. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. So if you like what you hear on this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Interested in becoming a sponsor or learning more about leadership for women's performance using neuroscience or business coaching, contact support at heatherpicken.com. And don't forget to grab my latest book, The La Dolce Vita Formula, by going to fearlessandfabulousbook.com. That's fearlessandfabulousbook.com. Dot com.